Hello and welcome to the Victory Alabang podcast. You're listening to a message from our preaching series entitled Here and Now. Together we'll discover what it means to live our lives for the kingdom of God. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you today. Good afternoon everyone. Victory Alabang, happy 35th anniversary to all of you. We are winding down on our series. This is our uh, last week of our series that we have been titled Here and Now. And if you're following this series, this is the series about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a central message of the entire Bible. If you look at Jesus Christ, he preached about the kingdom of God. It was the central message of his preaching. The first time he preached in Matthew 4, you're going to see he preached about the kingdom of God. And then you see a time that he was teaching the disciples how to pray. And he said, I want you to pray, yes, for your own needs. And that's valid. Supplication is valid. But yet I want you to pray for the kingdom of God to come as it is in heaven so that it will be fully manifested on earth. And we all know that when Jesus came on earth as the divine son of God in the flesh, he ushered in the kingdom already. So in a sense, the kingdom of God is already here, but yet not fully yet. So if you've ever heard the theological term already, but not yet, this is about the kingdom of God. He ushered it in. He talked about it, he told people about it, he preached about it, and then he went back to the Father in heaven but made a promise. His promise was this, one day I'm coming back and I'm going to establish fully the kingdom of God. In Revelations chapter 11, we're going to see that at the end of the age, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world in which we live in today, will be eaten up, swallowed, and then the kingdom of God will be fully established, and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you continue to read in the book of Revelations, it gives us a picture of the kingdom of God. It says, in that kingdom, we're going to walk on streets of gold. How many of you want to live in a place where everything is gold? Wow. It's streets of gold. And not only that, it says there will be no sin. There will be no temptation. How many of you wanting to live in a place like that? No sin, no temptation, no famine, no hunger, no sickness, no cancer, no pneumonia, no fever, no headache, no migraine, no back aches. It will be a place where you will not experience pain because pain will be no more, tears will be no more. And then it will be a place where we would enjoy our resurrected, glorified bodies. How many of you could imagine your glorified body? It will never decay. It will never experience death. The skin will not wrinkle. The hair will never fall off. Praise God. There's a lot of conjectures of what our resurrected glorified body would look like. But here's the thing. The thing is, it's going to be an awesome, glorious place. And it will come one day. How many of you know that is good news in the midst of the brokenness that we see all around us in this world today? And this brokenness affects not just the non-Christians, it affects Christians like us. It affects pastors like us. 
It affects the whole of creation. This creation is broken. There are tragedies caused by the brokenness of creation. But yet one day it's all going to change. One day there's going to be a whole new redeemed creation. And that is the message of the kingdom of God. If you look at that message, that message is something that excited the nation of Israel. They were very familiar with the teaching of the kingdom of God. In the book of Daniel, where Daniel prophesied about his statue, and it represents four kingdoms. There's a cut-out stone that hit this kingdom, and that kingdom, and that kingdom. It became one of the biggest mountains of all. That was the message in a prophetic word about the kingdom of God. So they were looking forward to it. They were familiar with it. And so when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, they were excited. And yet, as familiar as they were, they misunderstood the kingdom. Because they thought the kingdom of God was a geopolitical kingdom. And that was the reason why when Jesus at the triumphal entry, riding the donkey, how many of you remember that? He was riding that. They were excited. Because usually, it's a conquering general that would ride a horse going into the city. And they thought, wow. The kingdom of God will come. It will overthrow the Roman Empire kingdom, and we're going to have it. And then when Jesus was arrested, what did Peter do? Drew his sword. It's a military, geopolitical revolution to bring in the kingdom. He tried to hit. You know what he was trying to hit? He was not trying to hit the ear. You know, it's hard to hit the ear. He was going for the head. But he missed it, and he got the ear. Because he thought it was a geopolitical, and Jesus said, no, 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 that's not the kingdom I'm going to establish. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus was about to go to heaven, and the disciples, after hearing everything that Jesus was saying, 40 days, he was talking about the kingdom of God, and Jesus was about to leave, and their question was this, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Will this be the geopolitical kingdom that... You're going to give us? And Jesus said, ah, you're still not getting it. And that was the reason why Jesus gave parables, different parables that gives a different perspective about the kingdom of God to help them understand that the kingdom of God is so much more than what they thought it was. And I believe it is the same message that we need to hear today. Because a lot of us sometimes have a myopic perspective of the kingdom of God. We think the kingdom of God is about personal salvation and as important as it is for us to be saved, the kingdom of God is much bigger. Sometimes we think the kingdom of God is the church. And again, as much as we love the church, how many of you love the church? How many of you love your church mates? Well, I'm a shadow of us, sorry. <laughs> we love the church. We're, we're celebrating 35th year of God's faithfulness in the church, and yet, that's why it's fitting to preach this on our anniversary. It's declaring that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than the church, that our church victory is just one tiny speck of the kingdom of God. This is not the whole picture. And we're just a part of it. And we're glad we're a part of it. Sometimes we think that the kingdom of God is having a Christian nation with a Christian president with Christian laws. But it's so much more than that. And that's what we're going to look at again as we end our series today. Last uh, uh, three weeks ago, we talked about the first parable of the kingdom. 
We talk about the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Second week, we talk about the parable of the seed and the leaven. Last week, if you were here, the parable of the treasure and the pearl. And today, we're going to talk about the parable of the dragnet. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to read from verse 47 to 50. Again, so Jesus was emphasizing something important, so he had to repeat it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. I was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, we may never fully understand your word. So we're asking you, Lord, to open our spiritual eyes that we might see and open our spiritual ears that we might hear and that you would give us the grace to obey whatever we hear from you today. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it's interesting that when Jesus used a parable, a parable is usually a, a story that illustrates a lesson. He would always use an imagery that we're familiar with the people he's communicating to. How many of you know, how many of you love that about Jesus? He's trying to be relevant to us. He was trying to let us understand. So he used uh, an imagery of farming, the first three uh, parables. Uh, and today, as we talk about the parable of the dragnet, he used the imagery of fishing, which were very familiar to them because they were farmers and fishermen. Uh, I was trying to... I was trying to imagine if Jesus were here today in the Philippines and trying to talk to us about the kingdom of God. Uh, he might use uh, a movie. The kingdom of God is like, hello, love, goodbye. The kingdom of God is like a movie. He probably would say that because we're Filipinos. It's something relevant to us. Or he might say, the kingdom of God is like a hugot song. Like, <laughs> and, and something that we would understand. He was trying to let them understand. And he used fishing this time. Now, if you look at fishing, there, are you, there were three types of fishing that the Jewish people know how to do. First is the, the hook and line. This is an ancient hook and line that found in the Sea of Galilee. If you want to fish one fish at a time, then you use this. The second type of fishing is where they use nets. And there are two kinds of nets that they use. One is a one-man casting net. It's small, and they call it a hand net or a cast net. But you throw it, and they hold in the fish. But the other method of fishing they use, uh, that wherein they use a net, is called a drag net, and it looks like this. It's very different. So a drag net is huge. That would be uh, probably about a thousand, uh, a thousand feet long. They would put nets, and they would put uh, something that would sink the the net to about uh, 20 to 30 feet deep. And usually, a boat would, would get one end and he would turn like this 
And sometimes they would use this. They would ask some fishermen at the end of the one net and some fishermen at the end of the net. So they work together and eventually they haul the fish to the shore. That was the picture that was very familiar to the Jewish people when he was talking about the dragnet. And there are three things that will that, that's revealed in this parable about the kingdom of God, about God, about himself. Uh, here's the first one. Parable reveals three things. First, it reveals the universality of God's love. In verse uh, 47, again, the kingdom of God or heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. It says it was thrown into the sea and it gathered fish of every kind. They did not say, okay, let's throw it in this part so that there's a certain kind of fish we would get. They just threw it and they said, whatever kind of fish we can catch, we want to hold them in. And that's what the kingdom of God is. God wants every person to be part of the kingdom of God. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism. There's no judgment. He just wants everybody to be part of the kingdom of God. And why not? A while ago, we saw Revelations 21. This is one of the best places you can be in. Uh, there was in Matthew 22 a, a sort of a parable that's a parallel parable to this, the parable of the wedding banquet. How many of you have ever read the parable of the wedding banquet? And it's the kingdom of God is like uh, a wedding banquet. There was a king. He's got a son. And he threw this wedding banquet. And, and he was talking about that. Now, Imagine if you're a Jew, for a Jewish person, the highlight of all social life of a Jewish person is to attend a wedding feast. And this is the king throwing a wedding feast for his son. So this is the mother of all feasts. This is the mother of all parties. So Jesus was painting a picture that the kingdom of God is the mother of all parties. How many of you like parties? I used to think that parties are for non-Christians. <laughs> Celebrations are for non-Christians. When you become a Christian, you're going to be a holy, sad person. <laughs> I, I'm holy, but I'm sad. <laughs> I'm living for God, but I'm really sad. I cannot laugh. I cannot have fun. I cannot enjoy life. Jesus wants us to enjoy. In fact, he's preparing a kingdom that he says is the best party ever. And then he wanted everybody to be invited in this party. Imagine the most lavish wedding you could ever think of. To date, the most lavish wedding you can think of is, of course, in 1981. The, the wedding of uh, Diana and Prince Charles, $48 million was, uh, uh, was spent for this. If you put in the inflation, that's about $110 million. Can you imagine a wedding feast? How many of you know that's a party? <laughs> $110 million. Dozens of royals came. And 2 million people, 2 million people were there to observe it. And it was broadcast to a live TV audience of 750 million people. Because it is so lavish, they wanted people to see that's God's heart. This is going to be a lavish kingdom. It's going to be party. It's going to be joy. It's going to be fun. No sin, no anger, no hatred, love. And then he said this, but I want everybody to be here. 
And you might say, even that bad person, that bad person I don't want to talk to, I want that bad person I want to avoid, yes, even that person. Even that sinner that's trying to influence my son, <laughs> yes, even that. Every kind of fish. In other words, God loves us so much that He wants us to be a part of that kingdom. He wants us to experience the ultimate joy that the kingdom of God can bring us. He wants you to be a part of it. And not only you, your loved one, your spouse, your family, your best friend, your workmate, your office mate, your teachers, your neighbor, everyone you meet, he wants to be a part of this kingdom. His love is all encompassing. His love doesn't choose. His love doesn't select. His love is for all people. And the implication for us is that we need to love all people because our king loves all people like that. It means that the gospel is for everyone, not for a select few. The kingdom of God is not just for the church. It's for everyone. We cannot prejudge people. Sometimes, I remember when I was in college and we will share the gospel and we would look during the time it was a hit and miss. We, we don't invite our friends. We like, okay, this guy, this guy looks mabait. Uh, <laughs> if we go to him, I think he's going to accept. This guy looks hopeless. Wag na lang yan, di ba? <laughs> this guy looks, ah, mukhang demonyo to. Wag na to, di ba? Sometimes in our own humanity, we try to prejudge people. But the kingdom of God has no judgments. There is no hopeless person. God wants everyone in the kingdom of God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Second thing that it reveals is the inevitability of God's judgment. I was thinking to myself, wow, first time I'm going to preach in Akasha. And then I look, my first preaching here is about judgment. On our celebration of our anniversary. Wow. Thank you, Bodhi. Ana sinadyan Bodhi. mahirap sa'yo. Verse 48. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. It talks about uh, the, the, the phrase, the verse started with the word when. There's going to be a day of judgment. It's not if. It is when. It's inevitable. It's going to come. We say we should not judge, but that doesn't mean judgment is not coming. The Bible is just saying do not judge because there is a judge. If you look at this, it also says when, which means judgment is suspended. But that doesn't mean it is not coming, it will come. But some people would say, but why is it suspended? Why don't you come now, Lord, and judge all these bad people? Here's how Peter addressed that question. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 to 10. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise that He will return. In keeping His promise that He will establish the kingdom of God, that He will establish the rule of God. He's not slow, as some understand slowness. Instead, why has he not fulfilled that promise? 
The Bible says, He is patient with you. And you turn to your neighbor, smile at them, tell them, He is patient with you. How many of you could say, Praise God, He is patient with me. And He is patient with your loved one who's not in the kingdom of God yet. He's patient with your friend, with your family member. He's patient with people. And here's what he said. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This talks about God's loving patience. I was uh, reminded if you're a parent, if you're a parent here and you remember your toddler and you establish a rule in the house and they keep breaking the rule and you have to discipline, okay, parenting 101, you have to have a rule. <laughs> Second, you have to discipline if they break the rule. But sometimes as parents, uh, there are parents and we say don't do this in parenting seminar, but as parents, sometimes we, we count, right? You break the rule, you have a consequence, I'll discipline you. And they break it. And they said, one, I'm going to count to three. If you don't stop that, you're going to get it. They do it. And say, one. They do it again. One and a half. They keep doing one and three fourths. I'm warning you, two and one fifth. A lot of times it's because it's inconvenient to discipline. But I feel like God is doing that. I'm going to count a million, a thousand. Not because it's inconvenient to judge, but because He loves us, giving us a chance, giving our people a chance, giving the people that they love to be in the kingdom a chance. Even in judgment, God is loving. Wow. And then it says here, uh, it, it says here, he sat down, they would sit down, and they s would sort it. Sat down and sorted. You know, if you think about that phrase, sat down and sorted, it communicates the opposite of a hasty judgment. It communicates a deliberate, lengthy, methodical careful judgment. How many of you are glad God is not hasty in judging us? We live in a culture today of social media and internet where I, I don't know if you're familiar with the cancel culture. Cancel culture, like you do something stupid, you do something or say something stupid, people cancel you. They boycott you. They bully you on the internet without really trying to find out and studying why you did what you did. They are quick to judge. How many of you know that's why a lot of bullying happens because people are quick to judge? But our judge is the opposite. He's very slow to judge. And when he does judge, it's righteous, it's full of care, and it's precise. So even the inevitable judgment is coming, we can trust that it's coming from righteousness and justice and done with so much care. It says, as he judges, he would throw away the bad into a fiery furnace. Happy anniversary. Talking about fiery furnace. 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some people really get stumbled when judgment is talked about. In fact, this is a topic that we don't talk about, that we don't want to talk about. I don't want to preach on this. But judgment is one of the central messages of the kingdom of God. One theologian put it this way. Let me read it. We cringe at the exaggerated language about judgment. But we do need to recover a healthy understanding of judgment, which undeniably was a central feature of Jesus' message, both with Israel, regard to Israel, and as part of his kingdom preaching. Judgment is an essential part of the Christian message. We should never forget that without judgment, there's no need for salvation. Without judgment, there's no need for a savior. There's no need for Jesus to come. Without judgment, life is cheapened. For what we do does not matter. With Jesus and his kingdom, what we do matters. I feel like that this parable distinguishes the ones who has an empty profession of faith. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. For the Bible says. And the people who truly in their hearts sincerely are following him. Salvation is free, somebody said, but discipleship or following Jesus will cost you everything. And he said that. He laid that on the line. But here's the beautiful thing. As we follow Jesus, it might cost us everything. But as we've learned from last week, the kingdom of God is the most valuable treasure we can find. If you're going to, if you're going to exchange your trash for a real treasure, how could that be suffering? We'd rather let go of everything we have on earth. It might, it might cost pain for a season. But because we found the kingdom, at the end of it, we'll say it is all worth it. Judgment will come. There's no escaping. There's no avoiding it. And that might lead us to conclude, so I need to do good. And it's up to me. Not so, which leads us to the third thing that this parable reveals. It's the necessity of God's grace. Uh, this is interesting. In verse 51, at the end of all these parables, he, he was talking to the disciples. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. So it's interesting to note, as I was studying this, that while Jesus was giving about a parable about distinction and separation, he was demonstrating it. Uh, if you read the whole chapter, and to verse 33, it says, He went out and spoke to the crowd. And then, verse 34, He went in the house and spoke to the disciples. And then He said to the disciples, They would not understand, but you will understand. And He said, to you it was given, to them it was not. He was making that distinction. And so when he asked, do you understand? They were probably scratching their heads. Yes, you're doing it. You're saying, we're this, they're that. But yet, if you think about it, when he, when he explained the hidden meaning of the parables, why it was revealed to a certain group of people, it was not because they were good. The disciples could probably say, oh, because we're really good. We've never missed a service in Akasha. 
I read the Bible every day from cover to cover. Every day. <laughs> when I pray and fast, it's 41 days. Fast matindi pa kay Jesus, di ba? 40 lang si Jesus, ako 41. That's the reason why I am part of the kingdom. But if you look at his explanation, it has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with the posture of your heart. Which literally means this is about grace, not about your works. And if you look at the, the word good that was used, good fish, bad fish, bad fish, you throw away the good fish. You're probably thinking good works, good deeds. I have to live a good life. It literally means good that inspires others to embrace what is praiseworthy. But if you look at the Greek word and, and all the picture, it always comes out of faith. The goodness is a product of faith. So just like how Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace through faith. It's not what you do. It's not you per se. It's your faith in Christ. And when you have faith in Christ, grace flows through you. Let me read this one last verse, and then we're going to end in prayer. Matthew 22. Let me read this. Some sort of a parallel parable. The parable of the wedding banquet. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. He invited some royals and some rich and some VIPs. They didn't want to go. So go therefore to the main roads. Invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So same. Bad fish, good fish. Bad people, good people. Invited to the wedding. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the came, king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same judgment, same place, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Now think about that. In our modern times, if we never understand the context, we're, we're probably going to think, eh, napadaan lang eh. <laughs> Naglalakad ka lang, uy, attend kang wedding. <laughs> but hindi ka nakabalong, eh, hinila lang ako dito eh. Kasalanan ko ba? Would this be my fault? You did not tell me in advance, I need to wear a barong. There's no dress code, there's no RSVP. You just brought me in here. But here's the context. The culture during that time is if you're invited, they provide for you a wedding garment. So this dude had been offered a wedding garment and he refused to take it. By refusing to take the garment, he was not rejecting the garment, he was rejecting the host. You see, the only garment that would matter in the kingdom of God is not the garment of good works. Isaiah said it. It's like filthy rags the garment of good works to you. But then Isaiah said, but you clothe me with garments of righteousness. In Revelations, it's talking about a garment of white robe of righteousness. The only way we can be brought into the kingdom is by grace. The only way we can stay into the kingdom and live by kingdom standards is by grace. The only way we can live by kingdom values is by taking on the garment of righteousness. But we have to take it. We have to receive it. And by grace, walk out our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Because there's 
an incoming judgment it necessitates we live our lives by the grace of God that's the only way we stay in the kingdom thanks for listening make sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram feel free to share this message with your friends too For more information about our church, visit our website at www.victoryalabang.church.